Let's talk about drugs, baby. Let's talk about you and me. No, nope. it's not. No, I'm okay. out. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Hard yeah. pass. Yeah. Uh, not this, on board with drugs. This is going to be a weird episode. Um, just say no, kids. Legalize it. Oh, okay, that too. You know, look, it's a complicated topic. I it, guess we'll talk about it. it. Well, yeah, I think the movie sort of hits all the nuances, and I'm I'm okay with that. I am too. I'm agreed. Uh, this was the first time for both of you, right? Yes. Yes. This is going to be a fun talk. Yeah, it's gonna. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, hey, welcome again to the Good Trash Honorcast, where we gather around a table and we discuss the films you'll never discuss in film studies course. One film studies course you'll never take is all things Keanu, the man they call Keanu. The marathon continues. Yes, indeed, and we go into a, a little indie film from Richard Linklater called A Scanner Darkly. That's right. We are officially in the post Matrix phase of Keanu's career. Uh, looking at some really weird choices he made in the the mid aughts. Well, he made one cartoon and he made another cartoon. That's true. So there you go. Oh, uh, man, so we're going to talk about that. Um, I'm still Dustin. I'm still Arthur. I may or may not still be Dalton. The two He's hemispheres sure. of my brain are competing. <laughs> that, that's probably true. Um, and we are here to talk about this film, and that means we are going to spoil it because this is not a review show. It is an analysis show. And so if you don't know how this ends, um, you're going to uh, by the end of this, uh, well, 15, 15 seconds. Yeah. So One, uh, two. He ends up in a drug rehab that turns out is making the drugs. Yeah, he keeps ruining my synopsis. Oh shit! And I don't appreciate it. I'm sorry. Hey, hey, Arthur, go ahead and synopsize. Okay, I'm stealing this from Wikipedia because this is a hard film to synopsize. It's difficult. Uh, yes, but this is a pretty uh, in-depth uh, synopsis. So uh, bear with me here. Thanks, Wikipedia editors. All yes, uh, the United States has lost the war on drugs. Substance D, a powerful and dangerous drug that causes bizarre hallucinations, has swept the country. Approximately 20% of the total population is addicted. In response, the government has developed an invasive high-tech surveillance system and a network of undercover officers and informants. Bob Archer is one of those undercover agents assigned to immerse himself in the drug's underworld and infiltrate the supply chain. Sometime in the past, Archer, played by Keanu Reeves, abandoned his wife and two children, leaving him alone in a now-run-down suburban house in Anaheim. The house has since been repopulated by Archer's two drug-addicted layabout housemates, Luckman, played by Woody Harrelson, and Barris, played by Robert Downey Jr. Mm. The three spend their days intoxicated and having long, paranoid conversations. At the police station, Archer maintains privacy by wearing a scramble suit that constantly changes every aspect of his appearance, and he is known only by the code name Fred. Archer's senior officer, Hank, and all other undercover officers also wear scramble suits, protecting their identities even from each other. Since going undercover, Archer himself has become addicted to Substance D and has befriended the main woman he has been spying on, a cocaine addict and Substance D supplier named Donna. Played by Winona Ryder, Archer hopes to purchase large enough quantities of Substance D from Donna so that she is forced to introduce him to her own supplier, but he has also developed seemingly unrequited romantic feelings towards her. At work, Hank orders Arctor increased surveillance on Arctor himself and his associates. However, Arctor's house is now at the center of his own investigation, since this is where Donna and the other addicts in her and Arctor's life now spend most of their time. Arctor, therefore, has to carefully plan his double life. Though his prolonged use of Substance D is damaging his brain, causing him to sometimes forget his own identity. Meanwhile, the justified paranoia of Archer's housemates reaches extreme levels, and Barris secretly communicates to the police his exaggerated belief that Donna and Archer are terrorists. Barris unknowingly conveys this information in the presence of Archer himself, 
whose identity at the time is hidden behind his scramble suit. After Bear supplies the police with a faked recording allegedly proving his claims about Donna and Arthur, Hank orders that Barris be held on charges of providing false information. After Barris's arrest, Hank reveals to Arthur that he has deduced him to be the true identity of Fred by a process of elimination. Arthur seems legitimately surprised and repeats his own name in a disoriented, unfamiliar tone. Hank informs him that the real purpose of the surveillance was to catch Barris, not Arthur, and that the police were deliberately increasing Barris's paranoia until he attempted to cover his tracks. Hank reprimands Arthur for becoming addicted to substance D and warns him that he will be disciplined, likely with just a fine but possibly a few months of penal labor. Hank phones Donna, asks her to take Arthur to New Path, a corporation that runs a series of rehabilitation clinics, and Arthur, who is rapidly becoming more disoriented, leaves Hank's office, cursing Hank aloud. Afterwards, Hank enters the locker room and removes his scramble suit, revealing his true identity to the audience. Da da da! It Donna at the New Path Clinic Which was not surprising at all. Arthur no. experiences the symptoms of substance D withdrawal, including more severe brain damage. Sometime later, Donna converses with a fellow officer, and the audience learns that New Path is responsible for the manufacturing and distribution of substance D. Donna expresses her growing ethical aversion to their police work. Um. Yada, yada, yada. New Path Rehabilitation Center unnoticed as a genuine addict and collect incriminating evidence of New Path Substance D Farms. Donna and Mike debate whether Arthur's, Arthur's mind will recover enough so that he grasps the situation. In the final scene, New Path gives Arthur a new name, Bruce, and sends him from the clinic to a labor camp at an isolated New Path farm where he spots rows of blue flowers uh, referenced throughout the film as the source of Substance D. As the film in Arthur... Arctor hides a blue flower in his boot, apparently prepared to hand it over to the authorities during his upcoming Thanksgiving respite, though it is not at all clear whether he has recovered enough of his mental faculties to do so. This is Philip K. Dick's A Scanner Darkly. It's very sad. It is incredibly sad. And also really, really funny. Yes. Yes. So yeah, that's what happens in this movie. Uh, kudos to Wikipedia, because yeah, not an easy film to summarize. No. So let's do the review thing. Um, do we like this movie or not? Arthur, you're the other Virgin viewer. What say you? Um, I don't know. I um, So the first 20 or 30 minutes, I was pretty disoriented with what was happening. The rotoscoping's weird. And yeah, the animation itself is very weird and disorienting. And I think uh, we talked about it off air and to Dalton's point, I think it's, you know, I think it's supposed to be. I think you're supposed to be confused and off-put by what is happening and what is going on. And it really helps to convey the the paranoia of, of the situation and what everybody's going through. Uh, and, and I think that's a lot thanks to that mode of filmmaking and the way animation is used to, you know, convey the, the story and the themes and it's something we don't really see much so i think you know mode is one of those things i'd like to talk about later of, of filmmaking um with animation in particular uh the performances downey is really good here uh, and mm. i think harrelson too but he doesn't really have as much he's not, he's just kind of there to make a few jokes uh but downey is very good and really selling this and really helps uh the animated element of it, you know, everybody else is kind of playing straight, but he's very animated, very over the top and very Robert Downey. And it, it works very well. Yeah. Animating over him and how much he talks with his hands cannot have been easy. No. Uh, and so I, I, I like that about it quite a bit. I, I like the, the animation once, once I adjusted to it, I, I thought it was really cool. It looks really cool. Um, there's these kind of like 
3D yet 2D moments when, especially when uh, props are being moved or locations are being moved within um, the driving sequences. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and even just walking like through a house. Uh, there's a couple moments uh, in a flashback where uh, Keanu Arctor is walking through a house and he uh, goes into the kitchen. It just has this very uncanny feel to it as he's moving through the house. Um, and I think that's really cool. Uh, and Linklater's use of location and, and geography and, and how that's uh, as disorienting as the animation, I think, is, is really interesting. Um, but, yeah, the material itself, uh, it is very funny. It's got that very, uh, in Linklater's way, a slice-of-life element to it, uh, while also conveying this kind of sci-fi uh futuristic, um, somewhat... Uh, Oh, what's the word? I can't think of it. Um, Not too distant future, or no um, dystopian kind oh, of element yeah. to it uh, as well. Uh, and uh, so I, I appreciate how that all kind of comes together. Uh, Winona Ryder's good. Uh, I, I wish she had a little more kind of yeah. going on here. She feels very under under uh, used, underutilized. She's lightning when she's on, though. Yeah, she's she's good. She's very good. Um, and yeah, the the way I think it does kind of keep you guessing in, in some regards as to what's what is happening, and, and I, I you know I didn't know is this one timeline? Is this like a lot of flashbacks? Is this all in his head? And I wasn't quite sure, you know, exactly how that was going to pan out. Um, but I also think you know it, there's a lot of tragedy in the humor and in mm. the bigger scope of pulling out and and seeing the whole picture of what's going on and how depressing it really is. And so I, I think it masters that. Uh, tone and moving and navigating those those tones really quite well um and you know i think it's hitting on some stuff you know dark knight is kind of held up as this kind of post 9-11 surveillance thing but it's doing a lot of that as well here yeah um and so that's really cool uh so i i'm very fascinated by this movie it, it moves really well i'm surprised by that it moves very very well and um and so I, I, I think it's easy to watch. I think it's easy to kind of go back to. And so, yeah, I, I'm glad we finally got to watch it because I've always been interested in it just purely based on the, the animation style alone. Uh, and it's not what I was expecting. I was, I, you know, when I think Philip K. Dick, I think there's a very high concept sci-fi. And that's kind of low-key here. It's not so much that. It's, it's a much more personal, uh, intimate story. And so I, I think those elements are, you know, for great reason and, in Dick's life, you know, I, I think that is handled very well and tastefully. And so, yeah, I, yeah, I'm pretty pro on this one, I think. All right. All right. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Arthur Grun. What do you say, Dalton? Do you like this movie? I do quite a bit. Um, I, I really campaigned pretty hard for this film when we were picking uh, which Keanu films we would be discussing throughout the marathon. Uh, and I hadn't revisited this in quite a number of years um, so I was really excited when you guys agreed, okay, yeah, let's, let's do this for the marathon because I, I've been looking for an excuse to revisit it. And, uh, I think it's really interesting in the arc of Keanu's career. Uh, it's, it's a film that he really gets to act quite a bit more than he usually does in this film. Uh, and I think his performance is great. And as Arthur mentioned, all the performances are great. And I, I think probably not the least of which, uh, I'll only speak for the three main leads cause I know the most about their experiences, but, uh, probably doesn't hurt that you've got people who are notably drug users uh, as the leads. Uh, Keanu, Harrelson, and Downey Jr. are all uh, pretty public about their experience with drugs. Some of them like drugs too much in the case of Robert Downey Jr. Uh, Keanu's not very open about whether or not he's had any issues, but uh, he's said enough to make it sound like he knows he did too much at one point in his life. Uh, 
Harrelson still loves to smoke pot, but uh, Keanu has been kind of, he, he talks about his drug years in the early 90s, not with a, a great deal of uh, excitement, especially if you read uh, the GQ profile of him that just recently came out, which got referenced when we started this marathon uh, with River's Edge. Uh, he talks about experimenting quite a bit in his young years, and uh, again, I think the familiarity with being in the world of drugs that these actors have really lends an air of realness to the film because they are all funny and sad in that way that only drug addicts can be, honestly, and the the way that only uh, watching your life spiral in a, in a very fun way uh, can be, in a very damaging way can be. Uh, I want to throw back to you really quick, Dustin. Uh, the yes. title of this film comes from 1 Corinthians 13, 12, mm-hmm. which reads, For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then... I shall know even as I am known. What the hell does that mean? There's also a lot of weird punctuation. Well, okay, it's out of 1 Corinthians 13, which is the uh, the chapter of the Bible that you've heard at weddings. Um, love is patient, love is kind, you know, mm. those those things. Um, and uh, talking about how love becomes perfected over time. Whoa, really weird that uh, we're doing this uh, for my uh, my wedding gift marathon, huh? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so there, there's a connection there. And so this idea that at the other side of death, um, understanding will be greater. That uh, now we see through a glass darkly, but eventually we'll see face to face. Gotcha, gotcha. And then we'll really, we'll know as we are known, as that I'll know who you are, and you will really know yourself, and I'll know yourself in ways that I wouldn't have before. Okay, this makes way more sense as the title for this film now. So, I mean, you know, the, the gaining of enlightenment, of understanding. Um, there's also another uh, Chapter 15 reference in there where he talks about death being swallowed up in victory. That's mm. also uh, from that passage, O death, where is thy victory? O death, where is thy sting? Um, mm. Those kinds of things as well, uh, talking about the resurrection. Um, but I think those sprinkled in quotes are like dropping a little Shakespeare to give you gravitas without earning it. That's fair. So uh, I'm not keen on those particular uses, but well, the novel may make better use of it. I can't. This has the rare distinction. I think I mentioned it last week of being one of the few times we've discussed an adaptation on this film where I've actually read the source material. Uh, but it's been, God, almost 15 years now. So maybe, yeah, maybe not quite that long. But still, it's, it's been a long damn time since I read it, so I won't speak to that too much. Um, I love the film. I think it's great. As Arthur mentioned, we want to talk about the mode of filmmaking here. We'll get into that in analysis. But yeah, the uh, the shooting of this film took 23 days. The rotoscoping of it took 18 months. Mm. Uh, so really quite a laborious endeavor. Uh, a lot of damn money got spent, uh, considering it's an indie film. Uh, $8 million for three locations. Uh, not, not many more than that, maybe a handful more. But uh, a lot of work went into making this movie, and nobody saw it. And that's, I think, a shame, because I think it's very good. Uh, as Arthur mentioned, it's got that real Linklater hangout movie vibe, but there is that undercurrent of sadness to it that none of his other hangout movies have. And again, I think this, the subject matter is a huge part of that. Um, I don't really have anything else to say in terms of review. I think the meat of our discussion is going to be when we get to analysis. Uh, but yeah, I, I think it works really well. It's it's kind of hard to follow in terms of its it's dreamlike, druggy logic. It's it's kind of nonsensical uh, unfolding of time and plot because there isn't really much plot to speak of. It's it's mostly these little vignettes that uh, uh, very famously come from Dick's own experience, as Arthur mentioned. Uh, I think he he wrote very much from the heart with this, and uh, it shows quite a great deal in the source material or uh, in the subject matter, I guess. All right, very good, very good. Um, I like this movie a lot because it threads a particular needle. We've already talked about performances, which are great, the style, which is very interesting, and I like it. I do like this about the style, speaking of the rotoscoping. There's a way in which the faces of the actors 
um, are captured, but they're not. There's a flatness to the affect, yeah, and uh, that does very much capture uh, states of inebriation, uh, states, you know, where altered states, altered states, um, you know, whatever they happen to be, and uh, so there, there's a way in which you sort of know what's going on, but you don't quite know what's going on. Yeah. You, you can read the situation, but you can't quite read it. And uh, so there's a real accuracy of, like, I'm going into this movie inside of a purple haze. And so that's a good thing, yeah, I think. it conveys... Substance D is kind of portrayed as being both uh, psychedelic and an, and an upper. Mm-hmm. It's, 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 it's an, both... An amphetamine it's, psychedelic. Yeah, exactly. So And I think it conveys that very well. Yeah. And so I, that sense, I think, is very good. But one thing I, I find really interesting about this movie is that a lot of uh, drug movies, we're just going to we're going to create a genre, the drug movie, fall into one of two camps. They're either the party movie where it's, you know, it's really funny and guys say very funny things and we're having a good time and we're all looking to score and uh, how awesome is this? And then there is the preachy uh, Saturday afternoon special. Or after school special, I guess I should say, um, where it just is and see how bad your life got, right? And uh, the sort of death and destruction. Um, what they say in NA, um, my destiny was what prisons, institutions, and death. Um, and it sort of let leads you to that place. And it really does both quite well, which is unusual for these kinds of movies, where um, sometimes those preaching movies will have people saying funny bits, but it's how stupid are these people, right? And sometimes fun movies will have some consequences, but they're kind of hilarious, mm. uh, and uh, instead of being you know the sort of dire situation that it is. And so this movie, I think, really, really brilliantly threads that particular needle. And I, I, I haven't read the source material, but I, I, I ascribe that to that. Because Days and Confused is one of the other types. You're absolutely right. I mean, it's uh, it's tricky to do both those things. I think Train Spotting does a great job of it too. And you're right; it's not easy. And this film does a great job of it. So uh, for that, for my money, then it it becomes valuable and it becomes a, yeah. a thumbs up for me. Because yeah, on the other hand, you've got your uh, your uh, Requiem for a Dreams, which mm-hmm. are make don't make drugs look fun, mm-hmm. and it doesn't sell like what the danger is, right? Right. So yeah, yeah, or a Friday movie, or yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah. So. There you go, uh, dear listener. Those are our general biases. They are pro, question mark. And uh, that's what we're going to say so far. Let's go ahead and move on and expand your syllabus, though. So we're teaching a class in this imaginary world that we just created. And in this class, this movie is part of a block. Um, You know, we've been doing a thing, and I'm going to ask a question. Okay. Does the movie of the week, Mm -hmm. of the episode, must it be the primary text? Or would we want to use it supplementary? You know, I'd say that's your choice. I'm going to use it as the primary text. I think uh, I think you've done it a couple of times where you've stated that it's usually the uh, secondary or supplementary yeah, as well. But I, I'm just not sure I feel okay doing that. And I'm just, you know, I want to sort of like name that sort of... You're going to name that you're doing it. Yeah, the thought process is that sometimes the movie is very good, but it's maybe not the best illustration of whatever it is that you're trying to teach. Gotcha. But it definitely is... Um, good source material to bring in. See, in and, my internal head canon, it's all part of the larger class on Keanu, so it's going to stay the primary. But I get what you're doing. Yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, I guess just to name that, you know, movies and movie classes um, are complicated things to put together. Um, and so you might find something that's really, really good. I mean, I've taken classes where the movie on the syllabus we hardly talked about. And we spent most of the time talking about the supplementary film uh, because the instructor either wanted to screen this movie for reasons um, – 
you know, relating to uh, parts of the readings that we were not going to be able to address in class, or uh, they, um, in one particular case, chose a particular French extremity movie because it was the least objectionable mm. um, that could be selected. You know, so I mean, there are reasons why that could occur, and I just sort of want to throw that out there as okay. something just we ought to know about. So anyway, well stated. Yeah. So without further ado, um, Dalton, you're expanding your syllabus. You're doing a Keanu class. Um, which is a dream. Um, what would you pair with this film? Well, I, th- I think in terms of Keanu's career, you want to pair this with Constantine and Street Kings, which both come out within a few years of this. Uh, just kind of illustrate where his career is. Street Kings is kind of around 08, uh, later in this part of his career, and is kind of the downturn. He's burnt a lot of the goodwill the Matrix afforded him to do things like this film. And then also Constantine, which even though it's a studio movie, even though it's a comic book movie, it's very early in the modern making of comic book films, it's weirder. It's uh, darker and stranger and gothier. And great. It is very great. It was almost uh, what we discussed uh, for this phase of his career instead of a scanner darkly. So, again, I, I think in terms of looking at his career, you need to pair those with this film. Uh, I would also say that we need to look at this film in the context of Richard Linklater's career. Uh, so we're going to pair it with Everybody Wants Some and Dazed and Confused, two other Hangout movies. Uh, those are both films about people in the prime of their life, young and making silly mistakes and uh, having fun. Uh, and this is a film about what happens if you don't stop making mistakes and you keep making mistakes. And how does that arrested development impact your life? And how does that keep being fun? And how do you see the fallout of that? And again, as you mentioned in your review, Dustin, I think this film does a great job of illustrating the ways in which uh, again, it's it's both a sad and fun drug movie, which is kind of hard to pull off. It's it's not easy, and I think this film does it really remarkably well. And again, just to see Linklater working and his interest in vignettes, his interest in characters spending time together and just shooting the shit and seeing what a, a day in the life of a, of a character is like. Um, everybody wants some days and confused. Obviously, all kind of take place within you know a much tighter time frame than this, although. As Arthur alluded to, it is kind of hard to tell what the time frame of this movie is for a lot of reasons. But I think those are all interesting uh, pairings. Uh, I think next up, let's get uh, a movie about drug policy in here. It's a documentary called Grass, narrated by Woody Harrelson. Nice. Uh, It's from 1999, so it is a little out of date now. Um, Obviously, the American policy on marijuana has evolved a lot in the 20 years since that documentary was made. Is it different now? Uh, Yeah, quite a bit. Uh, I would say uh, oh, okay. quite a fair amount, even in states like our very own Oklahoma. It's a uh, wow. What a weird time. It's hey, weird to see uh, billboards for marijuana uh, dispensaries uh, driving down I-40. Yeah. People, all bizarre. Over, people in Oklahoma smoke pot. Oh, especially one that says I've got five on it, uh, which I, is a great billboard. You've seen that one, too? Yeah. I love that one. Yeah. It's it's weird know. to be driving around Oklahoma City and see all these damn weed billboards because, yes, People in Oklahoma have been smoking weed for a long time. It turns out we are... This popped up just as quick as tattoo par- parlors popped up once they legalized Yeah, they that. did. Like, yeah, they oh, did. hey, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it turns out we're uh, pretty close to Mexico and share a climate uh, in a lot of ways, and uh, it's easy to cultivate things when the climates are similar. So, yeah, no, marijuana has been a big part of the state for a long marijuana's time. Marijuana's a plant? Yeah. I didn't know. Yeah, as this it turns guy. out, this guy. So, anyway, uh, I-, I think it's just kind of a good primer on uh, American drug policy, specifically 
where the war on drugs starts with the Nixon administration and the reasons behind that uh, drug policy, which we'll probably talk about when we get to analysis. We'll, we'll in, in, examine and investigate American drug policy a little bit. Uh, but I think that's going to be a really important one. Uh, and lastly, I just want to throw in one other uh, Linklater movie, and it's uh, the film Bernie. Uh, Linklater does a lot of experiments in his career in terms of form. Uh, this is obviously a live-action animation hybrid. Bernie is a narrative documentary hybrid. It's about Bernie Sanders, right? Yeah. Okay. No, it's yeah. not about Bernie Sanders. It's about Bernie the murderer. Oh, okay. Uh, who, I don't know... That's Bernie Sanders. <laughs> we talking about the same guy? No, we're talking about a different guy. I can't okay. remember his last name. Uh, if you have not seen Bernie starring Jack Black and Matthew McConaughey and uh, Shirley MacLaine... It's great. It's very it's good. It's extremely good. Does Shirley MacLaine play Bernie Sanders? No, okay. she plays the person that Bernie murders. You've <laughs> got to stop this bit. It was funny once. It's not funny five <laughs> times. Uh, it's great. Uh, you should watch it. And again, I just think it's kind of great to see how Linklater experiments throughout his career. All right. Thank you very much for that. Thank <laughs> you, Dustin. <laughs> hey, Arthur. Do you want to expand the syllabus? Yeah. Uh, and I think my class is actually going to be on animation this semester. Uh and so uh, I, I think this section particularly might be about uh, some experimental animation and nice. that, that element. And, and the text I think we'd start with is actually uh, from Paul Wells. It's notes towards a theory of animation from understanding animation, um, where he actually outlines markers of kind of orthodox animation versus experimental animation. He has outliers that kind of um, he's got two columns where he outlines these are the, the elements you see with experimental versus orthodox and how they kind of line up uh, across the table. Um, it's a really interesting read. He uh, he highlights Linklater's earlier uh, rotoscoped film, uh, Waking Life from 2001. Yeah, I really wanted to squeeze that in, but it's hard to find. Uh, where he's playing with some of these same ideas. He also uh, references Waltz with Bashir, which is a little earlier than uh, Scanner Darkly as well. Uh, but two movies doing the same thing. And, and, and he points to those as a couple of films that really sparked an interest uh, in really delving more into analyzing animation in, in a different way. And, and with American animation, uh, you don't typically see it you know, played with as much as you would some other modes. It's, it's traditionally kind of become a, a genre piece in so much as it's it's a very family-oriented thing, and even stuff that may be more adult-oriented like The Simpsons or, or Family Guy is still pretty traditional as far as the animation. It doesn't really do anything yeah. um, to enhance the story at, at hand. And so that would kind of be the starting point, I think, uh, to pull from. I, I'd follow it up with... Um, I. I'd go to Japan, and I'd, I'd look at, uh, I think, Princess Mononoke, uh, which we spoke nice. about a long time ago. But uh, Japan, uh, the way they utilize animation, they, they do truly, I think, appreciate it as a mode of filmmaking rather than just a genre uh, to pull in kids. Um, and so I, I think Princess Mononoke has a lot of weight to the, the story. It's very adult-oriented. Uh, some very gruesome battle sequences uh, you wouldn't traditionally see in some animation. And so uh, I think that's where I'd go. And then I think I'd wrap everything up uh, with, I think, a real analog of this, and that is some of Millier's early works, uh, where he's filming and then they're going in and they're painting the frames and animating these live these live film sequences. And I think that's kind of, you know, that's what we're doing here. You, uh, um this movie a scanner darkly was you know filmed digitally and then they went and animated the frames and so that feels like a really good analog to kind of say this is an idea that's been present uh, and it's always been kind of an experimental edge of 
of this mode. And so I, I think those are the, the ways I would expand the syllabus uh, regarding a scanner darkly. All right. Very good. Very good. I like that very much, Arthur. And I was not mean to you. Sorry for being mean to you earlier, Dalton. <laughs> we never apologized to Dalton. I, I had a good time. Um, so I, I think what I would do with this film is um, I would have it in a block. I'm not sure what the course would be, but um, this sort of idea of experimentation in uh, commercial cinema mm -hmm. because it's definitely a commercial film. Yeah. You know, definitely, you know, doing that, although it did not, was not incredibly successfully commercially. And uh, so the sort of ways in which uh, avant-garde experimental sort of stylings find their way into sort of more mainstream offerings um, is part of what I would be thinking about. And also just uh, that nexus alongside uh, the idea of recovery from addiction in the life of the author um, I find to be really interesting. And so my pairing is uh, the novel and then the film adaptation of Naked Lunch by William S. Burroughs. Oh, yeah. And so uh, both uh, – the well, uh, the novel – is very much uh, Burroughs' sort of way out past junk, mm. um, specifically heroin and opioids. Um, and we'll talk more about his relationship with opioids and other drugs, um, which is, I think, interesting in the conversation uh, regarding uh, this particular film, Scanner Darkly. And uh, I would assign for then reading, uh, beyond just reading the novel and then watching uh, the film, which is um, the film Cronenberg uh, adapts, again, a commercial film. Uh, it, it stars Peter um, Weller. Um, of RoboCop fame, or later Star Trek bad guy fame, mm -hmm. in what Into Darkness? Into Darkness, yeah. I don't forget yeah. which one. Um, that you got it right on the first try. Just yeah, I was just guessing. Um, what, what, what are the odds? Mm -hmm. Um, but anyway, uh, Wrath of Khan, not. Um, that uh, he is definitely doing that kind of work, um, and uh, working with the sort of really non-sequential, non-you uh, know, non-chronological drug narrative, but also integrating bits of Burroughs' life. And so you have a Ginsburg character, you have a Kerouac character, you have the accidental shooting of his wife in Mexico City, which of course doesn't take place in uh, the novel at all. But um, the, the the famous story is that she says, um, in in, in this, the story is she says, "Hey, let's do our William Tell." routine and she puts a glass on top of her head and uh burrows while three shoots to the wind um shoots her in the in, the, in between the eyes um yeah which, i've heard that story which is awful i don't um, i don't know that i believe the story uh it, well one way well there were a lot of people in the room um oh, okay i didn't there, know that there's a room full of people when it happened jesus uh so booze is a hell of a drug man it's a thing uh and so there's that being integrated into the story as well as strange bookends uh, which I find to be really, really interesting. Also, it sort of delves with and wrestles with uh, um, William S. Burroughs' own uh, sort of uh, relationship to his own homosexuality and uh, and queerness, and I find that to be really, really fascinating as well. Um, but the, again, the movie is this uh, very much a Cronenberg film with the Muppets and all that kind of stuff. I was describing uh, the Mugwumps a little while ago to uh, Arthur, and I said it's a cross between the alien from Aliens and a pineapple. Um, if they had a baby, that's a Mugwump. I've seen the pictures. And uh, it, I think it works. Um, so anyway, that would be my sort of beginning place there. And then I would have him read uh, a couple chapters out of a book called Countercultural Colophone by Lauren G Lauren Glass. Um, and it's about Grove Press, uh, Evergreen Review, um, these two particular uh, uh, presses that produced a lot of avant-garde literature, including Naked Lunch. And then later on, uh, they made these film books of either scripts with images or other kinds of pictures. Um, dealing with uh, avant-garde films like uh, Last Year in Marion Bad or uh, Hiroshima Mon Amour and uh, some, some Godard films, etc. And uh, just talk about what it is 
uh, to do something that's experimental, what experimentalism is, what an avant-garde is, and uh, the commercialization thereof, and then to move that conversation into uh, the work of art as um, part of the rehabilitation process. And uh, look at Burroughs' sort of way of examining that, and then Dick's very, very different way of examining that uh, with the scanner darkly. Um, I might throw in an episode of The West Wing if I was at it. I might throw in episode 13 of the first season, which is uh, Take Out the Trash Day, in which Leo McGarry has a long, uh, whip-smart monologue describing his own alcoholism it's a great on episode. the other side of that alcoholism. And uh, so I find that to be really interesting. You know, I don't want one drink. I want 13 drinks. I don't, you know, um, my wife's divorce came in. Are you going to drink today? Well, I don't need a reason to drink. Like those sort of discussions are really, really interesting. So his his uh, handle on explaining alcoholism and, again, sort of on the other side of it looking back is uh, interesting um, as a descriptor and just something else I think would be worth talking about. So it would be – I would feel like this week would be a mess, though, in this class. Yeah, it would be a doozy. Um, because you're doing a lot of work. You're talking about avant-garde stuff, and you're talking about addiction stuff, and sort of authorial stuff. But that's sort of the nexus I'd want to live in if I was dealing with this film. I I had a hard time trying to think of an addiction film to pair with this, because I do think A Scanner Darkly is kind of singular mm-hmm. uh, in a lot of ways. Requiem for a Dream, maybe. Again, yeah, it's, it's too sad. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, it, it's, it's good that it's sad, but I, I think this... Just... Spectacular Now. Oh, that's a good one. That's a good call, yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, that's that's a great pick, but I, I that's maybe the best one, and I hadn't even thought of it. Yeah, but yeah, it's it's hard to find something to pair with this. Yeah, um, so I'm, I'm thank you for those picks, Dustin, because I had I struggled quite a bit. So, well, there you go, dear listener. Your syllabus just got a lot longer. I think now it's time to get down to business. Yes, That business is, as always, analysis, and we got so much to analyze with this movie. We're going to have a good time uh, with it. Um, our scanners are analyzing. There's going to be a joke in there somewhere, but I, I lost it. That's all right. We'll, we'll get around to scanners in a bit. I'm sad. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, let's talk about drugs and uh, criminalization and American drug policy. I think that's... Oh, we do want to start there. Okay. I think it's a big narrative thread, you know, the big E on the I chart, as they say. Yeah, it definitely is. Uh, so, the, yeah, the war on drugs is complicated and it failed. Yes. <laughs> uh, we should start there as our thesis, probably. Yes. Um, uh, if you need us to explain that to you, this is not the place for you to start. There's documentaries you can go watch. And, and the way in which there is sort of this government intentionality with it. Now, there's a particular conspiracy theory, you know, and, and, and so that is true-ish. The, the, the problem with any good lie is that you wrap it up in a truth, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Um, the CIA did not... Flood the ghettos with crack cocaine. They let them get flooded with it, cocaine. They, they did not do much about it, which is, yeah. Although, according to uh, the novel and film that's based on the, I can't remember the Jeremy Renner movie. Uh, we talked a lot about MCU when we were recording Good Trash Nights earlier. There's a Jeremy Renner film called Kill the Messenger mm. uh, about a guy that tried to break this story. According to him, who is now deceased, potentially at the hands of the CIA, uh, if you listen to some people, uh, he says there might have been more direct influence there. If you listen to the uh, Tom Cruise movie, um, oh, which Vanilla one? Sky? No, it just came out. Uh, it's not Air America. That's a American, American Made. There we go, American Made. Uh, look, there. Yeah, maybe they didn't do it themselves, but they might have hired out people to do it. Maybe, but there's the, the jury's still out. The jury's still out, and as you, you so succinctly said, Dustin, the the thing about a good lie is it's wrapped in a truth. It is hard to unknot, especially because a lot of those people 
don't tend to tell the truth, even mm-hmm. when they're uh, put on the stand to do so. And there definitely was a lack of care or consideration. Yes. There definitely was prevention that could have happened that did not happen. Yes. And then once uh, criminalization sort of uh, ramped itself up in this war on drugs, uh, the uh, I think the great analog here is crack cocaine versus powder cocaine. The inordinate sentencing uh, on the amounts thereof, yeah. It's like 100 times. It's, it's just ridiculous. Yeah, it's changed since then, but very famously in the 80s and 90s. You could have a whole heck of a lot more powder on you than you could rock. Mm-hmm. And uh, which is ridiculous. You know, it's, it, I mean, it's r- racial uh, lawmaking at its finest, right? Mm-hmm. It did exactly what it was supposed to do. And uh, interestingly enough, what we see uh, Donna's... That was a uh, sarcasm, by the way, in case mm, anybody wasn't clear. I, I heard your sarcasm. Phone. Okay, I just want to make sure. Uh, Donna um, Hawthorne's character, played by Winona Ryder, she is into coke. Yeah. So she's okay. And they're into substance D, and that's not okay, mm-hmm. which is the sort of government-infused thing. So this movie's definitely playing into the tropes of the conspiracy with its, you know, again, base ability, in fact, to be... Okay. Um, that's what I'm gonna say about that. But. To be unclear, yeah, yeah, it's it, it, it's wonky. Yeah, I, I think that the best culmination of this, right, is the, the the fact that New Path is the creator, manufacturer, and distributor of substance D, mm-hmm. uh, and it definitely asks some very interesting questions about uh, is our criminalization and not only criminalization but also our moral um, finger wagging at uh, drug users and drug addicts, a huge part of the problem. And I would say, yeah, probably. Mm -hmm. I think the shame that our society creates in drug users and uh, addicts uh, plays a huge factor and is a huge component in why so many people die and why so many people do not seek help, especially as we are thoroughly in the throes of an opiate crisis. And I think what is much easier to prove, and uh, this film navigates better, is not necessarily the government uh, involvement in the uh, drug epidemic that is substance D. It is the private component. Mm-hmm. It, it is the uh, the corporate and capitalist component in drug addiction, as we have seen with pharmaceutical companies uh, in the opiate crisis throughout the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, and well, I mean, literally the last 30, 40 years. Well, let's talk about Burroughs for a second regarding this, because he has an interesting statement. He says uh, regarding uh, junk, uh, specifically opioids, mm-hmm. um, which um, he has a different view of opioids and other drugs, and I want to talk about that more later. But one of the things he says is that treatment is the answer, um, that you don't have to worry about killing supply. You don't have to worry about taking no. out dealers. No. If you can treat people who are addicts, if they don't have people who want the stuff, it goes away. Yeah. And uh, so that the, the uh, cycle you of – can't stop the supply. Yeah, it, cycle of addiction is what keeps it going. And if you've got adequate treatment and adequate, you know, availability, and he talks about a particular um, drug he used to get off of heroin and uh, the, how useful it was, and I forget what it Probably was. Probably methadone. Uh, it wasn't that. It began with an A. Okay, um, I don't know that one. If you want to talk for a second, I can look it up real fast. But I can talk for a second. Okay, do that if you really want to look it up, because I think what's interesting about. Uh, and I don't know if Burroughs speaks to this, but I think what's interesting about opiates specifically uh, and is interesting about Philip K. Dick, who was uh, in the 70s, his drug of choice were amphetamines. Um, he talked about how he used amphetamines to write. You know what that is? That's Vivance. That's Adderall. Mm-hmm. We just give that to children uh, to help them focus. So it's interesting that intersection of uh, when does a drug stop become being medicinal and start being recreational, is, uh, especially for somebody who 
likes the drug that they might need to make their brain work right is very interesting. The substance is apomorphine. Uh, mm. is formed by the boiling of morphine with hydrochloric acid. Oh, I don't know about that one. It sounds, sounds like fun. something we might not do anymore. But um, it worked very well for Burroughs. And interesting. Well, and joke. again, and methadone is uh, treatments are very successful in helping mm-hmm. get people off of opioids. And I think, especially in the United States, we have a hard time accepting that you might have to give people drugs to help them get off of them. Right. And the other part of it is that shame aspect that you're talking about, that we the demonization of the addict. Well, very famous, or very, I think, profoundly in the film, there's the line, you either are Andy or you aren't. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think we have a society that says you're either an addict, or you don't do drugs. Well, and I think there's another step in it to, again, uh, rear the head of Leo McGarry. Mm. Uh, later on, season two or season three, he's before the uh, Senate subcommittee, and it's a discussion of a relapse. And uh, he has this conversation with a woman he's interested in romantically, who also happens to be his attorney. That's awkward. But anyway, uh, he is uh, having this conversation. He says, listen, when you decide to get sober, all your friends rally around you. Everybody's on your side. They're patting you on the back. But when you relapse, it's get away from me. I'm done with you. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that's part of it as well is that, you know, we, we as a society, we sort of expect that those things can't happen. There's a bit of a um standing grace or forgiveness or whatever you want to use for your terminologies uh for addiction but once you are a person who is struggling with addiction then it's not okay you're just an addict you know and you'll just never get any better and we know how the story ends and you know death institutions and prison yeah. fine go do your thing uh look all three of us uh, and let's not get too specific because that's kind of part of the the anonymous part of uh, getting sober for a lot of people, uh, but all three of us, uh, addiction has been a big factor in all of our lives, as it is in most people's lives. Uh, and I, I think you're absolutely right. It's we we have a troubling relationship as a society with drugs, and um, loving people who are addicts means loving them when they fall off the wagon. I mean, that's part of it. And obviously, yeah, if, if you're listening to this and are getting mad because you've been done wrong by an addict, of, of course, there comes a point mm-hmm. where you have to cut people out of your lives because at a certain point you're just enabling them. But sometimes it means showing people grace and forgiveness when they need it. Yeah, and so it, it, it's more complicated and convoluted than a, a, a Hallmark tale yeah. or um, you know, a very preachy sort of after-school special. Well, and again, this this binary logic enters into the film not just when Robert Downey Jr. is saying you're either on D or you aren't. When Bob Arctor is speaking to the Moose Lodge or whatever it is, he says you either get it or you don't. Mm-hmm. You either get that this is bad or you don't. And it's interesting that both the cops and the users have this very same dualistic thinking going on in, about the, their relationships to drugs, mm-hmm. and, and so that—that's the first thing I wanted to talk about. There, um, I want to talk more about drugs in particular um, because D again is used as this sort of uber uber evil of drugs, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, that the conversations uh, surrounding legalization are complex. Yes, right. Um, there's a lot going on with that. Um, I, I find myself on two sides of the coin. Uh, part of me sees criminalization, uh, especially of marijuana, as fundamentally destructive and uh, problematic for lots of reasons uh, for society and uh, and just in terms of the way in which our legal system tends to be punitive even after the fact. And uh, so I'm troubled by that. At the same time, I'm one person who has seen teenage usage of marijuana go very badly 
um, in my own personal life uh, with uh, people I care about. Teens shouldn't do drugs. No, I'm, yeah, their brains are still cooking. Uh, so let's go ahead and if we're if you hear us talking about legalization or decriminalization, let's go ahead and assume we're talking about uh, consenting adults. Right. Dustin, yeah, Dustin makes a great point, and he's absolutely right. Uh, if your brain's still cooking, don't shoot arrows at it. Yeah. So I mean, so there's that first thing that that needs to sort of caveat those kind of conversations. But if you do shoot arrows at your brain, you're still loved. Right. Sorry, I wanted to throw that out there, too. Yes. Um, uh, the other side, uh, Burroughs, again, I was reading this crazy introduction to Naked Lunch the other day. Yeah, I see you've uh, got a lot of uh, uh, dog-eared uh, passages there, huh? I, I like this book a lot. Um, it's, it's a good book. Uh, but uh, in one of the introductions, and several introductions um, that he's written over uh, several different iterations of the uh, text, uh, he talks about how um, – how to scale or to think about legalization with particular drugs, what mm-hmm. drugs need to be off the market, need to be illegal, criminalized, etc., and those which do not. Um, and uh, he puts opioids in the category of those who do not. And he says it is based on the idea that any drug that a cult forms around, probably okay. Any drugs <laughs> that don't form cults, not okay. That's a very interesting line of logic. So, you know, Rastafarians and pot or, you know, um, hippies and psychedelics, like, fine, whatever. Um, but you don't have a club of people saying, you know, we're going to, you know, worship Baphomet and do Vicodin. Like, that doesn't, you know, what I'm saying, that, that yeah. doesn't, doesn't quite work that way. Well, when you talk about substance abuse studies, uh, the way they are studied, there there's a lot, oh, there, there's three factors, and I can't remember all of them, but there's the potential for harm, uh, what, how high is the potential for personal harm, and how high is the potential for pers- or, uh, societal harm, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, and, and what is the med- potential medicinal purposes? Right. Uh, and yeah, it turns out opiates are real bad. They're very easy to get hooked on, and they're very hard to get off of. Uh, so that, that's a very complex one, especially because they are often rightfully used to mitigate severe pain for surgeries yeah well i mean i had eye surgery and um, i took vicodin and i'm glad of it because i was miserable yeah um well i since he's deceased i don't mind talking about it my my father was an opiate addict uh and uh spent a lot of years being mad at him and then i got my wisdom teeth out and got vicodin i was like fuck i get it yeah this is great oh i had a party party yeah they're it's fantastic and i i see the appeal i see why people have a hard time getting off of them it's yeah. uh, it's a doozy man but also, I mean, the medicinal side of it is useful. It's but complicated. Here's a thing that I think, uh, Scanner Darkly, though, threads that's different from Burroughs's um, sort of analysis, that Burroughs sees opiates and some drugs, I mean, your cocaines, your cracks, or whatever, your, method, um, your um, methamphetamine, mm-hmm. um, as these sort of isolating kind of drugs that you don't have, again, a, a, meth, a methamphetamine cult or whatever. Mm-hmm. But um, meth heads do hang out. Well, I mean, that was... Phil D heads hang out. Philip K. Dick had a bunch of teens rotating throughout his house. Uh, this is in the 70s after one of his many divorces. Um, he just basically opened up his house in Vallejo. I think it's in Vallejo. Uh, it's not important. He just had this rotating cast, and the names that scrawl at the end of this film comes directly from the end of the novel. Mm-hmm. Um, he knew watched a lot of people die or have their lives ruined, and yeah, he was mostly an amphetamine user. So yeah, they do in fact hang out. And I, I, again, is that not a cult? Um, so hard, I, hard I, to say. I, I the the sort of societal you know communal formation. Uh, analysis that Burrow offers, I think, is deficient. Mm-hmm. Right, I would agree, and that would that would be one of the things I'd want to bring into a course, I guess. Well, when again, as as I alluded to earlier, it, with medicinal purposes, amphetamines, especially in the state of Oklahoma, where we've experienced our fair share of methamphetamine problems, mm-hmm. we have a lot of side eyeing at people who use amphetamines, but there are people who need amphetamines to make their brains work 
mm-hmm. uh, in a way that soci- that is productive for society. I mean, you mentioned Vivance earlier. Yeah. I mean, it's got a use. Yes, there is there is a medicinal use for amphetamines, and it's this is a complicated topic. There's also a high potential for abuse, though. So mm-hmm. it's it's hairy to say the least. Yeah, and so I, I, again, I was just thinking uh, the way in which uh, there is a there is a real need that also is being addressed by this film of having your people. Mm. That, that the problem that Keanu Reeves' character is experiencing is kind of an utter isolation in the sober world of the police department. Yeah. And uh, he is definitely finding a real community uh, within his uh, Woody Harrelson, Robert Downey Jr., uh, Winona Ryder, Stoner buddies. Oh, man. We, and we've left out, um, not Harry Connick Jr., Rory Cochran. Uh, we've oh, yeah. left him Freck. out as Freck, who is, he's fabulous. Freckles. Ah, uh, he's so good. Yeah, the scene where he gets his sins read to him forever is, is so funny and yeah. so sad. Uh, we're, we're not going to solve drugs today, though. No. Uh, but you're right. I think that community aspect uh, is very interesting. It's just worth addressing, at yeah. least. Yeah. Let's talk about animation, huh? Yeah, it's pretty. Yeah. Uh, so uh, as we alluded to, this is using the rotoscope uh, technique, wherein uh, was shot digitally. They went in later to animate the frames and added this kind of cell-shaded look to it um and so in, in many ways it is experimenting with that form uh in ways we don't typically see in american uh cinema yeah. uh, especially american animation uh and, and animation in general it has be kind of as we alluded to uh really fallen into this it's it's a children's genre yeah. rather than a mode of filmmaking um and we don't really ever see it utilized as a mode it's it's mostly you know, Disney's making their big animated movie. Pixar's making their next animated movie. Ardman's making their next animated movie. Uh, Laika's on the rise with yeah. their stuff. Um, and Laika stuff skews a little bit more thematically mature, but you're right. These are all still children and family films. Yeah, and, and, and they're very good at what they do. The animation yeah. is gorgeous, and, and I, I love the stop-motion stuff that Laika and, and Ardman do, and I, I, I think Pixar makes some great movies. Um, but they, the animation is never really used to reinforce what's happening in in the film uh, and i think that's really where something like uh, a scanner darkly stands out because it's it's twofold one it, it's uh, mainly it's, it's it's that it puts you in the uh headspace of the characters uh one by completely disorienting you uh, the way this is kind of there's this uh, almost movement to the animation uh on, yeah. on each individual person or object it's it's not a uh a concrete color you know the face isn't peach it's got all different colors and the way they move it it, it changes the coloration of their face um yeah it's not just the outlines of the characters that are moving but because you're animating over live bodies everything is always moving yeah and and so there's this fluidity to it that is very disorienting and and, uh unusual but it also helps to set you into that headspace of being very paranoid of what is really what is real what's not real what's you know, happening, what's not happening. And I, I, I think it's really interesting how Linklater is able to use that to reinforce and and amplify what's going on on the screen. And I, I think it's really kind of sad that more filmmakers don't utilize animation in such a way to yeah. kind of reinforce uh, the stories that they're telling. And, and I, I think it's uh, an art that's, not used to the best of its abilities. And, and so I, I really appreciate what, what Linklater's doing here with that. You're absolutely right, Arthur. I, I think Japan has got this figured out a little bit better than we do in terms of animation can be for everybody and it can be for any purpose. Uh, it can be for all ages. It can be for just some ages. And it, again, it can be used to 
uh, in something like Akira, you can really use that animation to further some of your themes and ideas. And uh, you're right. I think Linklater excels so well at this. Uh, another one that comes to mind is Hal, uh, the Ginsberg story, uh, where there's oh, a lot of yeah. animated sequences and that that kind of helped. It's a good movie. Yeah. Uh, emphasize and, and add a new dynamic to that narrative as well. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I really... I, I, we don't do a lot of animated movies, and and so I, I don't really think there's ever much outside of the surface level there. But I think this animation here helps to add another layer to what's going on within the narrative and, yeah. and open up discussion there. And yes. just to name drop, another great instance of use of rotoscope is uh, Ralph Bashke's Lord of the Rings. Yeah, you like film. that one. It's a really good movie. Um, it, it you know it breaks off at the end of uh, the the Two Towers. Yeah, uh, which is too bad. He wanted to come back in for a sequel, and there is a uh, sort of Warner Brothers released Lord of the Rings sequel. Is it the Rankin Bass one? I forget. Yeah, it is Rankin Bass. Okay. Yeah. And then, uh, but uh, the their Return of the King is terrible. That's I hear that one's hideous. It's it's bad. it's got a song that's Frodo of the Nine Fingers. Why does he have nine fingers? You yeah, know, where's the tenth one? God, that I don't remember. Boring. I don't remember what the song is, yeah. but it's 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 this minstrelly vibrato laden voice that's hideous. I've seen the Bakshi one though, and it's very cool. Yeah, I like it a lot. I saw before I saw the the original Lord of the Rings. Oh yeah, yeah. So yeah, and it's terrifying watching those orcs come in, those guys, and hell yeah, you man. Know, I mean, it's it's very good use there. So just want to throw that out there. Why why do you think we don't see more? Kind of experiment on a on a more commercial scale with animation. I think rotoscoping, especially, it's just fucking hard. It's laborious yeah. and mm-hmm. it's expensive. It is expensive, and uh, experimentation tends to find its way into short film, not feature film, uh, in general. And funding is just not there yeah. because we don't pay for things that we're not guaranteed to like. You know, that's why we have twenty three MCU movies. Oh, yeah. I mean, this movie barely broke even, and I think the MCU is kind of the closest we get, especially in you know Infinity it's War. It's pretty much an animated film. Exactly, it's often mostly animation. I, I think performance capture CGI is kind of the closest we're going to get to that integration into uh, mainstream film. That seems like the next big thing. You know, I think of you know, Life of Pi, but also the Jungle Book, which Favreau did a couple years ago, yeah. which is this idea of. It's a quote-unquote live-action remake, but it's all CGI and yeah. digitally altered. And we're mm-hmm. about to see The Lion King do the exact same thing with these photorealistic animals, which adds this uncanny valley yeah. element to it that is very bizarre. Mm-hmm. I mean, And it's not like these things aren't also labor-intensive. I mean, you yeah, hear these mm-hmm. stories about these uh, effects uh, houses that open and close within the production of one movie because it's so expensive and so time-consuming. Yeah. So it's not like it's any cheaper or easier than hand-drawn animation. But for whatever reason, uh, the performance capture computer animation just has really taken off. And I, I, I'm, it's an interesting uh, aspect of our, our filmmaking culture. I assume if it's it's probably a question of how far can we take this and can we yeah. do these There's a versatility re- recreations of... Yeah. And, well, well and I think it's a question about the avant-garde as well. You know, avant-garde filmmaking is, or avant-garde art of any form, draws attention to the artifice mm. and the device. Performance capture eases. It hides it. Yeah, it, it hides it, in that it, uncanny valley a yeah, little bit better. It elides the apparatus. Yeah. And so that's, that's part of, I think, why it's so successful and popular and commercial. Interesting. Um, I had a couple other things I want to talk about. Okay. That, yeah. Uh, so the first thing is genre. Yeah. Uh, this mm-hmm. is kind of a... One side is a drug movie. Sure. Uh, but the other side is the sci-fi element. Mm-hmm. And I was just kind of wondering, get your thoughts. Do you see this as a science fiction film? Do you really read it that way? Or is that kind of just... A little bit. It's interesting how these pre-social media revolution films um, always 
uh, see the 1984 police state, right? They always see the surveillance state as coming from the state, whereas in practice it ended up coming from within. Mm-hmm. It ended up being something that we as a populace bought into uh, commercially. They didn't uh, read Foucault close enough. Yeah, well, we should have. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it, it's hey, Foucault, just... Foucault, you, buddy. <laughs> oh, man, okay. But yeah, no, it's 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 interesting that we always assumed this would be something the, the state would force us to buy into, and instead it was something that corporations asked us to buy into, and we did. Um, and I think that aspect of it is telling, just in terms of uh, its setting as a near-future film. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the science fiction elements are there, sure, with the scramble suits and the, the way the surveillance works. Um, but I, I think it's window dressing more than anything. Well, it's metaphorical sci-fi, you know, yeah. it, that you live in this world where you become the gray man. Yeah. You know, uh, that's that's what the scramble suit is really just a way of, you know, putting, a, a, like, a, what you say, a sci-fi dressing on the metaphor of what, what it's like to live like one of the straits. Yeah, and I, I think it was mostly uh, an aspect of just Philip K. Dick wrote sci-fi, so that's how he wrote his drug story, just because that was the mode he was comfortable working in. So coming out of that, the sets up the next question is, if... Dick's work, I mean, outside of probably Stephen King and Shakespeare, I don't know of another author whose work has been as prominently adapted. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What is it about these stories, do you think, Lynn's, you know, Dick's writing, his ideas, more than Orwell, more than Wells, you know, he's he's kind of become that voice, I think, of, of sci-fi. Yeah. And what is it about him, do you think, fascinates and captures the imagination? I think he writes about essential human questions in a very real way. He writes about identity and memory and personality uh, in a way that I, I don't think a lot of science fiction, fiction authors do. He's, he's not really a hard sci-fi guy. He's using sci-fi to distract you. To He's jingling keys in front of you so he can read you a, a treatise on uh, the human mind, right? And, and I think that's a big part of it. It's it's that his interest is in the internal workings of the characters, not so much in the sci-fi worlds. Yeah, uh, the be- sci-fi, science fiction at its best is never like uh, questions of, you know, the biology of the alien monster, you know, and uh, that it's got, you know, 50-foot tentacles or whatever, you know, that kind of stuff. It's, it's, it's not even, is the android human? It's what if, how do you know you're real? It's that mm-hmm. kind of shit that we talked about when we talked about Blade Runner a couple months back. Yeah, and that's when science fiction is at its best. And those are the things that sort of resonate. Of course, you know, a movie where it's just like aliens are coming, smashy, smashy. Super cool. Independence Day uh, kind of stuff. That, those are fun, but that's not the, really the same sort of questions. Um, that's, you know, again, the, you know, the edge of tomorrow, or the city at the edge of tomorrow from Star Trek or, um, you know, any number of those episodes that really resonate. They, those are the ones that ask the questions. The, uh, or even the, Arrival. I mean, I think yeah. Hillary Duve is kind of in or that contact. same vein. Yeah. yeah. I was thinking about uh, the uh, Philip K. Dick uh, series on um, Amazon, Electric Dreams, which just adapts a bunch of his short stories. Um, some are better than others, but it's really strong and, again, tackles the same thing. It's, yeah, the, the window dressing's fun and cool, but it's uh, how, do, how do these big ideas impact emotional uh, inner workings of people's lives. Mm-hmm. Well, the Matrix, right? Yeah, you yeah. know, I mean, to bring it back to Keanu, I mean, the reason why it works so well is it's like, yeah, it's a cool idea if all all the world's a video game, but that's really not what that movie's about anyway. No, so it's you know about revolution, it's about identity, it's you know about the mind, and you know those kind of things. Yeah, hell yeah. So yeah, yeah. I think we're ready to render a verdict. Don't okay, we? let's do it. What do you say, Arthur? Shelf or trash? Go. Um, I think just purely on the kind of novelty of the idea i would shelf it I, i'm very fascinated by this animation style and, and what it's doing and how it's kind of set apart from other animated films also i i just think it's a very interesting look at addiction and, and uh it's navigated well you know it doesn't like you said it doesn't fall to one side or the other it really blends that after school thing with the the fun gathering with friends thing and 
Um, it's a really unique uh, film in that regard. So I, I would shelf it. Yeah, I'm right there with you, Arthur. I think, love it or hate it, the novelty alone makes it worth shelving. And a, a villainous Robert Downey Jr. performance is not something we get very often, especially uh, post-Tony Stark. I don't think we'll ever get a great RDJ villain again. Uh, I think Barris is a great villain because you can never tell when he's full of shit and when he's telling the truth because he's so charismatic in the way that only somebody that's very, very messed up on drugs can be. Mm -hmm. uh, that that kind of the hand-waving of a charismatic person who's been dialed up to 11 by, by an altered state is compelling in a way that sucks you in in a very... He's got a real Manson energy in this film, and uh, it's really cool. So that performance alone is shelfable, but yeah, I, I think it, novelty, addiction, all these things, it make it worth being on the shelf. Absolutely. Um, there are two kinds of shelves in the world. Uh, mm -hmm. This is the first thing I want to say. There is like the shelf in which you keep your treasures. Yes. The shelf in which you keep your most valuable things. And then there is the shelf of just... A, a clothes cupboard under the TV. Just the weird stuff. This is like your Ed and Lorraine Warren, you know, little cabinet of stuff back yeah. in a basement. This movie goes there. Yeah, I mean, it does. It's, it's definitely a shelf, but it's a shelf of, because of just what you guys said, because it's so bloody weird. I mean, why would you not? You know, yeah, it why? goes in the room with the forbidden knowledge. Exactly. And so, I, yeah, this is this is definitely a shelfer, but not a shelfer for the same reason that, say, Casablanca is a shelfer. Yeah. Um, but it's definitely, you know, it's a hard shelf, but it, in a different sort of section of the house. It goes on the curiosity shelf, not yes. the capital C cannon shelf. Correct. Yeah. So there you go, dear listener. Those are our thoughts. Um, we're going to do another Keanu movie? The uh, the love for the man called Keanu continues with uh, a really big departure. We're going into uh, the, the slump of the uh, late 20-aughts and 2010s, uh, but somehow he managed to get enough uh, scratch and pull together to direct a movie. Which is pretty cool. Not mm -hmm. often do we we didn't get to we didn't get around to fences or any of Denzel's directorial work when we did his marathon. Hopefully, if we revisit Denzel's career, we'll get to do that. But we are going to do the Man of Tai Chi, starring Tiger Chin, Keanu's yeah. directorial debut, and much like uh, we get a villainous RDJ here, we're going to get a villainous Keanu next week. So it'll be interesting. You know, I like kung fu. Yeah, I know you do. So uh, I'm excited about this. Uh, you keep watching. We'll keep talking, and we'll see you all next time. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.